All right, let's turn back to Ephesians and uh, chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians and chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, brethren, that's a prayer that is made by the Apostle Paul, and we are beginning to look at it this morning. Uh, but as we've already been seeing, it comes at the end of uh, a number of uh, things that the Apostle Paul says about himself earlier in this chapter. I have said a number of times that when Paul begins this chapter, that's really what he was intending to do. So the words, for this reason, at the beginning of chapter 3, if you can turn there, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, those words are actually the ones we find in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He was intending to go straight into prayer, but the moment he said, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he immediately realized there was some unfinished business that he needed to process before he can go into this prayer. And we've already noticed that. He spoke about the grace of stewardship that he was given to, to steward this uh, mystery. Let's quickly read that section. He pauses when he says, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He goes on to speak about this same revelation that God gave him concerning God's 
universal agenda of salvation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 down to verse 6. When you read this, he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So not just to Paul, but also to the apostles and the New Testament prophets. And then he goes further into this same mystery. He says this, verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Across the world and across history, God has this agenda of salvation that is to reach the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And Paul comes back to himself and says that he senses a real sense of gratitude to God. That God should have included him in this particular work. Look at the way he puts it there in verse 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, he says. He can't believe it. To me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery for ages in God, the God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul just can't believe the goodness of God to him when he's invited to participate in this glorious work. And that's the reason why he now is speaking here because he's in prison. And he wants the believers to realize that he's not in a pity party. He's rejoicing at the goodness of God. And that's the way he ended this section in verse 11 to verse 13. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't feel sorry for me, he's saying. I am most privileged to do this work that is resulting in your good, your glory. Well, he's now back to the prayer. He's He's talked about himself, 
shoved himself in a corner and his back to this prayer. And if you look at it, you will notice that it is quite an intricate prayer. And in dealing with it, I want to deal with what I would call the top layer this morning. And then the Lord willing next Sunday will deal with the bottom layer of this prayer. And you will easily notice that there are two layers and each of them is quite involving. So for instance, the first layer is in verse 14 to verse 16 where he is praying that Christians may have strength, may have spiritual power. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is, is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's the first prayer request. It's the top layer. And then, if you are strengthened, there's something else that will follow that he is also praying about. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, there it is again, may have strength. But this time, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So you can't miss that the second part is to do with experientially knowing God's love for you. Not just in the brain, but knowing it in the heart in such a way that you are strengthened as you live your Christian life in this world. In both cases, he's praying for strength. For strength. And I think it's important, brethren, that we, we pause for a moment and realize that. That we live in a world of sin. We also live in a world that is in the enslaving power of the evil one, the devil, who is equally powerful. And if God does not come in and intervene if God does not strengthen those of us who are his, then the life that God expects us to live for his glory would be totally impossible. Totally impossible. But thankfully, he gives us the strength to enable us to do so. But what that means, especially for unbelievers, is that unless you come to Christ, such a life is completely impossible. You can go to church all your life if you want. You will still be 
a slave of sin and a slave of the devil. You still will be. And therefore, instead of trying and trying and trying, what you ought to do is to come to Christ that he may save you. Well, let's quickly look at two things from this passage, that first layer of the prayer of Paul. Just two things. One is the one to whom prayer is made, and secondly, that top request that is made to him. Just those two items, and we will be done for this morning. First of all, the one to whom prayer is made. In praying for believers, let us be mindful that we pray to the Father of all creation and of all his people. All creation and all his people. The Apostle Paul deliberately describes God in those terms. He says there again, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now in speaking about bowing his knees, all Paul is saying is that I pray. That's all he's saying. I am praying. However, in describing prayer as bowing one's knee before the Father, Paul is emphasizing the, the sense of surrender and the sense of humility that is there as he approaches God. I think we all know this. The bowing of the knee suggests a sense of, of reverence and respect to the one before whom you are coming. It speaks about humility on your end as you are coming before God in that way. It speaks of a surrendering to the being before whom you are coming. It speaks of your own sense of desperate need for that which only he can bring to you. Let me quickly take you to three passages. One is Ezra, chapter 9. The other is Luke, chapter 22. And then the last is Acts, chapter 21. And in each one of these, we, we have uh, uh, individuals who are bowing before the Lord in this particular way. So first of all, Ezra and chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Uh, this is Ezra's own testimony. He is uh, humiliated by the intermarriage that is there between the people of Israel and the Gentiles among whom they had gone. He is ashamed of that as he is now approaching the Lord. So in verse 5, maybe I'll just begin a little bit above just to capture the intermarriage. Verse 2, 
For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, these Gentile daughters, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. You can't miss the sense of humiliation, the sense of surrender, the sense of I've come to the end of myself. Lord, we need you to act in mercy. We need you to act in grace. We see the same with respect to our Savior in Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 41. Luke 22 and verse 41. I begin reading from verse 39 while you are finding your way there. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and there it is and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was at the end of his own strength. He was about to be crucified. He knew it was coming. In the crucifixion, he was to suffer not just human wrath, but much more the wrath of God against us as sinners. All his elect people, their sins were to be laid on him. And God's wrath was to be poured upon him. He, he sensed it in his own spirit. And consequently, he fell before God and pleaded for mercy pleaded that if it was the Father's will, that it would pass away from him. You can see the posture that Jesus had at that moment. Hence, his falling on his knees. Lastly, Acts chapter 21. We have the Apostle Paul there parting ways with... Um, the, the Ephesian believers and others who also meant a lot to him. Um, now he's gone to Jerusalem as well. And again, his conscience of parting even there and so forth. So uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. But listen to what is happening along the way. This time it's not just him, but it's uh, the people that are there. Again, you can't miss the sense of uh, dependence on the Lord here. 
verse, 20, verse 1. And when we had parted from them, that is uh, the Ephesian context, and sent sail, we came to a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Because they knew what awaited him from the revelation of the Spirit of God. Verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the, on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. The sense of finality, the sense of we need God. It wasn't just a quick prayer that is being made as there's a parting of ways. It was, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon us. Hence, the falling on their knees. Well, this is what Paul is capturing, this atmosphere, as he speaks in terms of, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I come to him helpless of myself and saying, Lord, the church needs you. Your people desperately need you. You need to come in and help. But notice it begins with a little phrase, for this reason. For this reason. Thankfully, that's the way he began verse 1. So we don't need to guess much as to what the reason is. It is because of what he has been expounding in chapter 2, at least the last part of chapter 2. And it is the way in which God has been pleased to bring his church into being, comprising Jews and Gentiles. We've seen that from chapter 2, verse 11 to the very end. So, because of what God has done, I am now praying for this reason. But I think we can still go back further. We can go to chapter 1 and verse 15, where Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints, he says there, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'm actually praying for you for this reason. 
So there is a lot that Paul has already dealt with that gives him the reason to fall before the Lord and to pray to the Father. Because even in chapter 1, you will notice that it is to the Father. Verse 17, I'm praying in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the, the glorious Father, the, the one who, who, who owns all things, I am praying to him. And I think that helps us to appreciate why in starting the prayer, he describes the Father in these words, isn't it? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What a phrase. It's one that's a little difficult for us to know what he's talking about because he's never used this phrase anywhere else in all his letters. This is the only place that Paul describes the Father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Who are these that he's referring to as every family? The, the New International Version translates it as from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And I don't blame the, the translators too much because I think personally I'm tempted to think that that's what Paul is referring to. The, the whole family of believers, both those who've gone into heaven and those who are still here on earth. After all, in chapter 2, verse 11 to the end, that's what he was talking about. That the, the whole church, those who have already gone ahead of us, those who are still on earth, are being built together as a holy temple for God. All together. So, one would think that that's what he is saying there. The only problem with that is that Paul doesn't say the whole family. It's not the um, one family. It's in plural. So it makes sense to say every family. In other words, all the families are named by him, whether in heaven or on earth. So you it, it begs a little difficult because it, it, it's not speaking about all the churches. Because in heaven you don't have churches. They are all one. And even speaking about the church on earth, Paul is talking about one temple that is being built rather than many little temples being built. So one is meant to think perhaps he's referring to Human families, every human family, whether they have gone into heaven or they are still here on earth. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul has in mind here because I want to repeat, it's a phrase he doesn't use elsewhere. But the picture cannot be missed. He's talking about the God who 
is in charge of all, whether in heaven or on earth. He's the one who is all in all, which is a phrase he uses in chapter 4, just a few verses after that. Uh, look at chapter 4 and verse 6. Chapter 4 and verse 6. He says there, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think that's what Paul is trying to capture even here. That the God before whom I am going is the only one who actually matters in the whole universe. He's the one who's in control of all, not just on earth, but also in, in heaven. He is the authority figure. Hence the phrase, um, from whom all of them are named. The giving of the name suggests that you have authority over them. He's saying is the one before whom he is coming. And so, God's universal fatherhood is what he has in mind here. God's universal fatherhood. His family, whether in heaven and on earth, is absolutely dependent on him. He has the authority, therefore he's the one to whom Paul is praying. Well, it's the same with us, brethren. When you fall on your knees and you say, Our Father who is in heaven, He's the one you are going before. You're not talking to some little idol that is just the God of the Bembas or the Tumbukas or the Zambians or the Baptists or the whatever, just for them. You are dealing with the one who matters over the whole of life. Even the presidents of this globe right now who are causing wars, he is over them. That's the one before whom we come. And that's why even this week, as we set it aside for prayer, brethren, this is not a little thing we are doing in some corner somewhere. We are going to be speaking to the one who is over all and in all. There is not one inch of this universe that's outside his control. Not one bit of it. That's the one before whom we'll be coming. What a privilege. Eh? What a privilege. To, to come to appeal before such a being. To fall upon our knees, figuratively speaking. Because obviously in this text, Paul wasn't really on his knees, but he's speaking figuratively. That God, we need you. We may be nothing as far as this world is concerned, but you are everything. We need you. Are you conscious that this is the God, if you are truly a Christian, before whom you come to pray? Well, very quickly, 
the request that is being made, the top request. And it is this. We need strength. We need strength. If we are going to glorify you, we need strength. God's people need strength. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Wow. Before Paul mentions his request, he first of all talks about the, the abundance that God has from which he is asking for something. The abundance that God has. He says that according to the riches of his glory. We saw it already when he was beginning to pray in chapter 1 and verse 18 when he referred to him as the father of glory. Now he's talking here about asking according to the riches of his glory. What does he have in mind? Thankfully, Ephesians was written at exactly the same time as Philippians and exactly at the same time as Colossians. Paul was writing all these letters, including Philemon, by the way. All these letters were all being written while he was in a prison cell. And then he sent them through the hands of uh, Tychicus and others. So when you read these three letters, you find a lot of similarities. A bit of different language, but a lot of similarities. So let me take you to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And you won't miss the fact that this is exactly what Paul is saying even there. Colossians 1 and verse 11. He's praying, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and so on and so forth. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, and here it is now, according to his glorious might, in accordance with his might, but which is at such a level that it's a glorious might. So that's what we are asking for you. And that's what really Paul is saying even among the Ephesians here. He's saying that according to the riches of his glory, he may give you strength. And he's referring here to the riches of his glory. I would say his glorious riches. His glorious riches. So for instance, you may have an uncle in Zambia, who may be very rich, compared to you, that is. He's very rich. And uh, you know that when you are in need, 
and you ask him for help, you, you deliberately exaggerate the figures. Okay, so even if what you needed was 3,000 for your school fees, you want to say to him, 30,000, you know, I need 30,000. You know that he will easily send you a, a 10,000 and won't even notice that there's a difference in his account. He is very rich. But he's still nothing compared to Elon Musk. I, eh? I mean, that guy, I was just reading recently that his wealth is almost $300 billion. Not kwacha, eh? dollars. $300 billion. I mean, if he died right now and his children were to share in the estate, each of them would be getting something like $30 billion. Not million. Million then times three zeros. Billion. Each of them. Your brain stops functioning at a certain point. It gets stuck. Now leave him behind. Let's forget your uncle. Let's forget Elon Musk. And come to this God. Because this God now owns the galaxies upon the galaxies upon the galaxies that make up this entire universe and our most powerful Powerful telescope is only scratching the surface of what this great God has and what his power upholds. It's, it's glorious might. It's, it's glorious riches. And Paul is saying it is in view of that, that I'm, I'm now asking you to strengthen your children on earth. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, friends, that in itself is suggesting that God's people will be upheld. Because this is not a little power. This is power beyond comprehension. This is glorious, from his glorious riches, that the Spirit of God, remember here, it's spiritual strength. The Spirit of God will strengthen His people from the inside out to enable God's people to live the kind of life that will glorify Him in this world, in this same world, with all the sin that surrounds them, with the reality of a devil who's prowling around like a, a lion that God's people will be enabled to stand to live that life that glorifies God. That's the reason why 
God's people live this life that shocks the world, that shocks even angelic beings, that, that makes them wonder at the wisdom of God. We saw that earlier when we were examining those verses in chapter 3, those earlier verses. It is because of this power of God that is all-glorious, all-glorious, that enables this to be. And yet, remember, it's a prayer request. In other words, that's what we should be praying for, for one another. You see, there's nothing wrong with praying for journeying mercies, with praying for jobs, with praying for scholarships, with praying for good health. There's nothing wrong with that. But friends, that should be the any other business of our praying. There's something more that we should be praying for with respect to one another. And we should take a leaf from the Apostle Paul here. We should be praying that Christians will experience this glorious strength of God in their beings. That through the Spirit of God, in their inner beings, they may be strengthened with power to be able to live for God. What it means is that even if you don't have details about the life of that brother or the life of that sister who's your fellow member in the church, you at least have one prayer request that you can immediately put before the Lord. And it is God strengthen this saint. As we wrap up, I want to suggest to you that that's actually what Paul was praying for in chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1 and then we will wrap up. I've said this before, let me say it again, that what Paul was speaking about in chapter 1 as he began to pray for the Ephesians is actually what he wraps up in chapter 3. So everything in between is Paul explaining in detail what he has already begun to speak about in chapter 1. So let's get back there for a moment. And you won't miss it as we will go on to wrap up this prayer. Everything that you say there is still here. What is his prayer request? Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I've explained that, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We'll see that next week, this knowledge. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, we shall see that a little more. That you may know, this knowledge again, what is the hope to which he has called you. Number two, 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then number three is exactly what we've just finished looking at. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power that took Jesus to be above all rule and authority, verse 21, and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul there is saying, that's the prayer I am making, that you may know, not just know it here, but know it experientially, that it might be part of your daily living, the capacity to overcome temptation, to overcome trials, and still glorify God in the midst of all these realities. That power that will overcome this force of gravity that is pushing you down and down, but it will enable you to overcome that gravity and take you further up and up and up until together with Christ you are seated far above all these powers. And I'm praying that that might be the experience for you people. Let me end where I began. Think of the non-Christian who's sitting in here right now. Who knows that I'm in trouble with God because every day I'm sinning against Him. I love my sin. And even when I hear sermons and I regret my sin, as soon as I go back, the devil says, slave, and I say, sir, come here, and off I go to the bar to squander all my little resources. I'm a slave. Again, I want to say, it's not church that's going to save you. It's Christ. He alone has the power to change that heart of yours, to remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He alone has the power to enable you to speak back into the devil's face that you are no longer his slave. He alone has this rich storehouse of power that will enable you to overcome your darling sins and enable you to, to love others and to love the Lord. Jesus Christ can do that to you today. If you but come to him in genuine repentance, just come to him. He will break the power of sin in your life. And from that point onwards, together with other believers praying for you, you will go from strength to strength to strength 
until you appear before God in Zion. So come to Christ. Come to Christ today. Amen.